uh, my pleasure to go to get to go to campus and serve uh, college students there and tell them about Jesus um, and try to build a group on campus. So um, I'm thankful for your support of the Mind Ministry as always, and thankful for the opportunity to get to do that. So um, this morning we are going to be in Acts chapter nine. Um, it is conveniently printed in your bulletin. There are also Bibles in the pew in front of you if you'd like to follow along. Um, but I'm going to ask you to stand as we read God's word from Acts chapter nine. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon, his, upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, this is God's word. Um, it's absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. Would you pray with me for the teaching of it? Heavenly Father, we um, are so thankful uh, that this event is recorded for us, that we get to learn from uh, this experience that uh, Saul uh, and Paul, the Apostle Paul, had on the road to Damascus. Lord, I pray that you would teach us, that you would reveal to us um, your will for us this morning, uh, what this passage might say about our lives, how we live them, uh, what it might look like for us to go out and serve um, North Charleston, the places where we live uh, in light of this. We ask that you would um, increase and that I would decrease and that you would do that um, by your spirit. Amen. You may be seated. 
<clears throat> um, so what is your Damascus Road experience? It's a question that you might get from another Christian. It's a question that you might, uh, it, when you're joining a church, when you're uh, meeting someone for the first time, uh, maybe just in casual conversation, someone might ask you that question. Um, it's a question that I ask every single college student that I meet with. And strangely, uh, I haven't met with any college student more than once. <laughs> um, no, I don't actually ask them that. Um, but uh, the question, this Damascus Road experience kind of dynamic points to this passage, this chapter in the book of Acts, um, because it's one of the, if not the most famous conversion in the Bible. And fundamental to the Christian faith is, the, is this idea of conversion, um, the idea of moving from death to life, of moving from unbelief to belief, moving from skepticism to faith. So the question kind of for us this morning is what constitutes a Damascus Road experience? Um, I think inherent to when someone kind of is talking about their Damascus Road experience, inherent to that is something that is shocking, something that's revelatory. Um, and uh, some of us have experiences like that. Some of us would say we, we had a Damascus Road experience. Um, but others of us, uh, myself included, uh, wouldn't say that I really have a Damascus Road experience. Uh, we can imagine uh, for baby Noah a life where he's baptized here, he grows up in the church, he never knows a day when he didn't hear about Jesus, didn't know about Jesus. Of course, he might have uh, a radical conversion experience, but um, many of us don't have uh, those those similar experiences. And talking about these experiences can be hard because you meet someone who has this amazing experience and you yourself don't have that experience and you begin to question uh, your own uh, conversion, your own experience. So as we dive into our passage this morning, we need to ask uh, this question of our text, as we do with any, as we do with any text. We don't need to ask um, what is the lasting effect of this text in the life of the church today, although that is an important question to ask. We don't need to ask about how famous this passage is, um, how exciting the story is, but rather the question that we need to ask of this text this morning is what are the actual features of this text? What do we actually see written down in this story? And what does it show us about ourselves, about what it might look like for us to follow Jesus? I think it's important to note that this passage is not meant to be normative for us. All the theologians that I read about this, many of the theologians that I read about this passage said that, that it's not meant to be normative for us. It's not meant to dictate our own conversion experiences, um, but it's rather meant to be something that we can learn from. And so it's my hope this morning that we can learn from it. And I, I think it's important especially important that we learn from it because while we may not all be as overt as Saul in his opposition to the church, um, we are in fact God's enemies by nature. The way that we live our lives on default uh, is in opposition to who God is, to who he teaches us to be. Um, so my uh, thesis for us this morning uh, is that when we encounter God, he turns people from enemy to family. When we encounter God, he turns people from enemy to family. And those are going to be our two points this morning, from enemy to family. Um, and first, we're going to talk about um, how we are God's enemies, how Saul was God's enemy. So Saul was an enemy of Christians and God himself, but Saul has a powerful encounter with Jesus. Saul was an enemy of Christians and God himself, but he has a powerful encounter with Jesus. 
So first, how was Saul an enemy of Christians? Uh, Look with me in verses one and two of our passage. Um, Look at the words that are being used to talk about Saul in this passage. It says that he is breathing threats and murder. (coughs) And the the word there for for breathing, um, it has kind of the connotation of like the breath of a wild animal. In the chapter before this, um, it talks about the same character, Saul, and it says um, that he is destroying the church. And the word that is used there in, in that context means uh, conveys kind of an angry beast ravaging something. Uh, it's clear to us as we think about those two words that Saul is an enemy of the church. Um, he was in the middle of this journey. He, he, this journey that he was taking on the Damascus Road um, was specifically designed for him to go to that place, go to Damascus, and attack Christians in the church. That was the whole point of this journey. Saul was a man on a mission, a mission to destroy the nascent church and all that it stood for. If you were going to do like a top 10 uh, list of people in that world, in that day, least least likely to become Christians, Saul would have been at the top of that list. It would be really easy to write Saul off. And as we think about this idea of writing someone off, I want to think about who in our own lives we sometimes write off. Um, Maybe we write off uh, those friends, uh, those neighbors who never take you up on your invitations to come over for dinner, to um, join you at a church picnic, perhaps. Maybe those are who we write off. Maybe we write off uh, members of the LGBTQ community. Maybe that's who we um, are quick to write off. Those of you who are in school, maybe um, you write off the people that are different than you. Maybe you kind of are quiet by nature and you write off the people that are not quiet by nature. Maybe you're uh, not quiet by nature and you write off those people that never seem to talk, never seem to give you anything. Maybe it's even your family members. Maybe it's the people in your life who you've been witnessing to, who you've been sharing about your faith with um, and whose hearts just seem closed off to spiritual things. Who do we say is too far off? Who do we say is too out of reach for God um, to reveal himself to in our lives? Because wouldn't we have done the same thing with Saul? And where would we be if God had written off Saul? Because Saul becomes Paul, the apostle Paul, who wrote, you know, most of this part of the Bible. He wrote most of the words in the New Testament. Um, Where would we be without Saul if God had written him off? So Saul was an enemy of uh, of Christians, but Saul was not only an enemy of Christians, Saul was actually persecuting God himself. And we see that in verse four. I want you to notice that Jesus in verse four doesn't say that Saul is persecuting his people or his church, but instead he says that he is persecuting Jesus himself. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And without knowing it, without being able to to articulate it himself, Saul has actually been opposed Um, not only to the followers of the way, to these Christians, um, but he's actually opposed to the risen Messiah himself. I want you to see when we oppose Jesus's church, we oppose him. When we oppose Jesus's church, we oppose him. The two, the church and Jesus, are intimately connected. Of course, uh, if you've been around the church, you've heard that uh, he, Jesus, his, the bride is the church, that he's the bridegroom and the church is the bride. They're intimately connected. And I want to propose to you that this is why it's an oxymoron for someone to say that they follow Jesus, but they're not into the church. That's something that you might hear. That's something that maybe you've said yourself. And I want to challenge you this morning that um, it's an oxymoron to say that. 
Um, because when someone insults something that you are close to, something that you are intimately connected with, you feel insulted yourself. Um, I'm going to throw a couple of statements out there, um, and I'm going to let you know, you guys, you can let me know, um, you know, by common consent, what you think about these statements, how they make you feel. Uh, Clemson football is trash. Um, Oak Terrace is the worst Park Circle subdivision. Uh, Boomers are out of touch and they're holding our society back. South Carolina is the worst of the Carolinas. When you hear these statements, probably you're feeling a little bit offended. You feel like you need to defend yourself in those, uh, from those statements. Um, and it's ironic because I didn't actually say anything about anyone in this church, just a cu- couple different you know, schools and places. Um, and it's like this for myself as well, right? If I'm headed into a parent-teacher meeting for my son at his school, and I'm told that my son is acting up, that my son is doing these things, that we need to get my son in line, I'm going to feel it in my gut. I'm going to feel like I need to defend him, like I need to defend myself um, in that meeting. If someone insults my wife, I'm going to def- you know, feel like I need to defend myself, defend her. Um, because it's as if we've been insulted ourselves when something that we love, something that we care deeply about is insulted. And it's true in our passage that the church is Jesus's bride, that he loves her and he has committed himself to her. They are joined. And if you insult the church, if you insult um, his bride, you actually insult Jesus himself. I want to note here that uh, no doubt many of you sitting here this morning have been hurt by the church. Maybe you've been hurt by Christians. Um, and this is lamentable. It's, it's sad. It should not be the case. Um, and it can be really hard if that's the case for you to separate um, bad faith actors from the institution itself. Sometimes it's actually impossible to do that. Um, and sometimes it's really hard to separate those people from Jesus himself as well. When you're hurt by the church, it feels like you're hurt by Jesus himself. But uh, regardless of of your experience with the church, uh, it can't mean that we give up on the church. It can't mean that we give up and we try to follow Jesus without his people. Because our passage this morning is telling us that that's not how it works. The church and Jesus are intertwined. They're connected. Um, And that's how it was meant to be from the very beginning. Um, So not only is Saul an enemy of uh, Christians, he's an enemy of Jesus himself. Um, And then uh, in our passage, we see that Saul has this powerful encounter with Jesus that sets him on a path that we never could have expected. We're going to look in verses three through nine here. Um, Look in uh, the first words that Jesus says to Saul in verse four, says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And uh, this kind of call of Saul um, is referencing other calls in the Old Testament. Um, The tense that's used here, Saul, Saul, is uh, what's called the vocative tense, um, which comes, which is what we get our, our um, word vocation from, uh, our calling. Uh, it's, the, it's the tense that's used when someone is being called. And it's the same tense that's used in the Old Testament when God calls someone to a particular task. It's used when um, God calls Abraham. It's used when God calls Jacob. It's used when God calls Moses. All these uh, famous people in the Old Testament, the fathers of the faith, um, it's the same, it looks the same when they are called as well. Also in the Old Testament, when someone is called, um, often there is a bright light. Often there is a disembodied voice. This is what it looks like in the Old Testament when someone sees God, when God presents himself to someone and calls them. 
Saul in our passage is presented with the risen Jesus. And what do we find him doing? Um, Saul obeys. It's, it's recorded that he continues on to Damascus. He follows the call that Jesus gives him. As he gets there, he begins to fast. And uh, Saul knows inherently that something important, something significant is happening in his life. And Saul does what Christians have done since the very beginning. When something significant happens in their life or when something is about to happen in their life, they, he fasts. Um, oftentimes, uh, this is something that Christians do, right? If you're about to graduate, if you're looking for a new job, if you're trying to decide on a job offer, if you're moving, if you're deciding on where your kids are going to school, go to school, something that Christians have done throughout the years has fasted um, because God promises to, um, God shows us himself in, in different ways sometimes when we fast. Saul is beginning to be changed in, this, in our passage this morning. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a famous theologian, says this about uh, when God calls someone. He says, when God calls someone, he bids them come and die. This is how it is with Ananias, Saul, and indeed all of us. Saul, the man who was, needed to die. How could God potentially be calling you to die this morning or in your life? Maybe God is calling you to die um, to your family because maybe your family doesn't approve of your faith. Maybe they don't approve of what you're um, trying to do in your life uh, in following Jesus. Could, could God be calling you to die in that way? Uh, maybe God is calling you to die in terms of um, the sex ethic of the Bible, that sex is reserved for marriage, that marriage is reserved for a man and a woman. Maybe God is calling you to die um, to the way that you're living your life currently. Maybe God is calling you to die to your pride. You think that you have it all figured out, that you've, you've done the research, right? You know the, you, know, you know the science. It couldn't be that God made all things. It has to be through natural processes. Maybe God is calling you to die to your pride in the fact that you think that you know everything about our world. The Christian life isn't easy. C.S. Lewis says that the hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men, and his compulsion is our liberation. I'm going to read that again. The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men, and his compulsion is our liberation. When God calls us, when God compels us to do something, it actually is God freeing us. The claim of the Bible is that if you aren't following Jesus, you may think that you're free, but you're actually in chains. The Christian story tells us that Jesus wants to free you. He wants to liberate you. He wants to take those chains and break them. It doesn't always feel like great news, right? It doesn't feel like great news when I tell you this morning that God is calling you to die. Uh, I don't really want to die. I imagine that many of you don't want to die. So how can this possibly be good news for us? The good news is that God is actually calling us to a better story than the stories that we're currently living. He's actually calling us to be his family. So he's calling us, uh, he makes uh, us, we were enemies and he's making us his family from enemy to family. So our second point to family. Um, and this is where Saul ends up in the end of our passage. Saul, through the faithful welcome of Ananias, becomes a storyteller. Saul, through the faithful welcome of Ananias, becomes a storyteller. So what is the faithful welcome of Ananias? Look in verses 10 through 17 here. It's likely that Ananias, this man, knew that Saul was coming. Um, he had probably heard that Saul was on his way. The church in Damascus had heard that Saul was on his way. Um, and it's likely that Ananias knew who Saul was. It's very likely, very possible that 
Ananias had friends um, who had lost wives, who had lost husbands. Um, It's likely that he knew people who were orphans directly because of Saul and his persecution of the church. So this is the big ask of Ananias. Just like with Saul, God's call is to be responded with obedience. So let's see how Ananias um, fulfills that. Uh, We see that he faithfully goes. He obeys. He welcomes Saul, his enemy. Um, I want to tell you a story about two unlikely people who began as enemies and then became allies. Uh, Likely, many of you, if not all of you, are familiar with the uh, Rwandan genocide that happened years ago. Um, And uh, in that conflict, there was uh, one group of people that was, you know, thought it was their uh, right to to kill this other group of people, the Hutus and the Tutsis. And um, there were these two individuals, um, Mrs. Muka Rorinda, who I'm going to call Mrs. M from now on, and Mr. Uh, Indaya Saba, who is going to be Mr. N. Uh, Mr. N was a Hutu and Mrs. M was a Tutsi. And they grew up in Rwanda knowing each other. They were, you know, in the same neighborhood. Um, they went to school together. They knew each other. And as this um, happened, as this conflict began to happen, Mr. N, um, you know, was going out. They had, the way that they often did it was with machetes. So he um, went out with his machete. Um, he went to her house um, and he took her hand um, with the machete. Um, her, her daughter actually ended up being killed. He killed her daughter. And then he left her, he and the men that he was with left her for dead in the house. Three years later, this man uh, turned himself in. Uh, he was so racked with guilt by what he had done that he turned himself in. And there was a program in the government there uh, that uh, people who were a part of this uh, genocide would be released. So he was released six years after that as a part of this program to pardon the Hutus. And p- part of this uh, program was uh, reconciliation, was uh, apologizing to the victims. And so Mr. N had been changed. He went to go apologize to his victims. And as he went to find this woman, Mrs. M, he went to her and he apologized. And uh, as you might expect, it was really hard for her. So she has lost her arm. She's lost her daughter because of this man. Hard for her to decide to forgive him. But after some time, she, you know, thinks and prays and begins to um, realize that this is what uh, is right is to forgive him. And so she does do that. She forgives him. But not only did she forgive him, these two individuals began working in a charity um, that rebuilt houses for victims of uh, the genocide together. Um, Not only did she forgive him, she began to work with him. Uh, Maybe this story gives you the heebie-jeebies. I know it does for me. Uh, Maybe just because the graphic nature of it, but um, likely it gives you the heebie-jeebies because you imagine if that was me, I never could forgive someone for what they have done to me. Um, and I think it's, a, it's an innate reaction uh, that we might have. Um, it's not right. How could that person ever uh, forgive um, that other person? How could Mrs. M ever forgive Mr. N? Uh, the question for us this morning um, as we look at our passage is, this. Are we ready for our enemies to become our brothers? Are you prepared for that? Because that is what will happen if you accept this call to be a storyteller, to to be God's storyteller in the world. Those that you never would have been caught dead with will not only be attending church with you, but they will uh, be called and become your brothers and your sisters. God's call on us is radical. It changes everything about our lives. 
So how does uh, Saul become a storyteller? Look in the end of your passage, verses 18 to 22. <clears throat> um, I want to emphasize to you that it's not only about conversion. This passage is not only about conversion, but it's also about vocation. There is a job for Saul to do in the world. In, in verse 6, Saul is not just being converted. He's actually being called to something. He has something to do. He has a vocation. He has a role to play. So what is that role? Verse 18, Saul rose and was baptized. Verse 19, he eats and he strengthens himself. And then verse 20, we see that he immediately, that word is important, he immediately begins to proclaim the good news, to preach the gospel, to tell the story of Jesus. Paul's role, his vocation, is to become a preacher of the gospel. And of course, as we step back and think about this passage, there couldn't have been a bigger turnaround, right? From where he started in the beginning of chapter nine to where we find him at the end of um, this section in verse 22. Because when we encounter God, he turns us from enemy to family. So I want you to imagine Saul, imagine what it was like for him. Saul was blind uh, from this experience. And the first time he encountered a Christian, the very people that he had been persecuting, the first time he encountered him, what would he expect? He would expect anger. He would expect vitriol. He would expect judgment. But what does he find? Saul finds a gentle hand on his shoulder, calling him brother. He has been accepted. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're not sure that you could be accepted, that that could ever be true of you. You know the things that you've done. You know um, the things that you will do, that you imagine that you will do in your life. And you're not sure that God could ever accept you. Beloved, Jesus, the one who you have sinned against, isn't to be found sitting in judgment. He's to be found with a gentle, restorative hand on your shoulder, naming you brother and naming you sister. Jesus on the cross covered the worst of the worst that we have done, that we could ever have done. And he is able to accept you now, to make you a part of his family, to call you his brother and to call you his sister. Would you pray with me? Lord, I know that um, this is something that I desire, Lord, that I I know that I'm your enemy in so many ways, Um, Lord, that I have sinned against you, that I will continue to sin against you. Um, And it's a deep desire of my heart to be named your brother, uh, your son, Lord. And I know for many of my friends here as well, it's a deep desire of our hearts. And I pray that you would continue to grow that desire in our hearts, Lord, to be forgiven of the things that we've done, to see them as they really are, and to experience the restorative power of your grace, of the work of your son Jesus on the cross. And I pray that you would um, help us to see that, Lord, um, that you would help us to be changed. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.